today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There was a story that happened or occurred actually earlier this week uh, that didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time simply because there was so much else going on to, with the Prime Minister's visit last weekend to Ukraine. And, uh, and of course, uh, Zelensky uh, also reaching out to a number of African nations. Uh, but what happened was uh, the uh, Canadians have uh, basically commandeered uh, a, a Russian plane that's uh, at Pearson Airport in Toronto. And, and basically, I've seized this airplane that's been sitting on the tarmac now uh, since February. And, and people are getting rather concerned about this in Moscow. And now there seems to be some diplomatic repercussions to that. Uh, with that and, and some other uh, uh, developments, shall we say, about what's happening between Canada and uh, and the Russians these days. So pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Professor Aurel Brown, who is a professor of international relations <clears throat> and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. Let's, let's talk about the, this airplane incident, first of all. Uh, somewhat surprising for Canada to take uh, this kind of action. I, we know that there have been sanctions that have been imposed, of course, uh, because of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. But this is a pretty bold move by the Canadians. Indeed, it is bold. It is also morally justified, given the brazen aggression by Russia. The problem is whether it will be legally successful because seizing private property is viewed by some as a violation of international law. It is not the same as seizing state-owned property. And in this case, what will happen is that once the Canadian government files a court application, that can be challenged uh, by this company, which has kind of murky ownership ties and uh, also a complicated uh, history. Uh, and Canada is the first country in the G7 to do this, and I'm not sure if others would follow it, and we don't know how successful it would be. There is a kind of irony in this, because this is the seizure of an aircraft, an Antonov-124, which was designed originally in Ukraine, and it follows the destruction by Russia in uh, February of last year of the largest plane in the world that was owned by Ukraine, this Antonov-225. But... If you take any such steps, it has to be something that is really meaningful, that uh, is ultimately successful. And that's what concerns me. And there are some other alternatives that Canada could uh, engage in that perhaps would be far more successful. And something was outlined recently by Larry Summers, Philip Zelikow, and Rob uh, Zolik, respectively, a former uh, Secretary of the Treasury in the U.S., a former senior uh, diplomat, and the former U.S trade representative and uh, the head of the World Bank, where they talked about state countermeasures, where in fact there are something like $300 billion in sovereign accounts that Russia has abroad that uh, have been frozen. That could be seized because the rebuilding of Ukraine will take at least $400 billion. And if Canada would do that, it may be followed by others. And these countermeasures could be justified, even though they may be viewed by some as extrajudicial, because this would be a means of self-help in international law, and self-help is allowed. The Russians have not complied with international law. They have engaged in such a huge breach of international law that uh, this kind of action is likely very justified in international law because it is against the state directly. It uh, would bring in vast amounts of funds and those could be transferred to Ukraine, and perhaps Canada ought to explore that 
as a better alternative, or at least do it together in case this one does not succeed. So, and as you mentioned, uh, there are other G7 nations that have signed on to this this new law this, that has been enacted. Uh, is this the first time it's actually been used, though, Professor? In other words, this, this is precedent-setting, I would think. Well, it, it would be, because uh, Canada is the first uh, G7 country to enact a law that allows... Uh, to seize assets and then to forfeit the money, but it's it's very difficult to uh, implement. And so, in international, and in, in ultimately, this is not just about law; it's also about politics because it, it's symbolic, but it also has to be substantive. And success is crucial; otherwise, you don't create a deterrent. If you become entangled in years-long uh, legal battles and uh, um, the promise of having these funds ready to send to Ukraine or transferring the aircraft to Ukraine is not uh, really implemented, then uh, I, I think uh, there are questions raised as to whether this was a wise act uh, to engage in. Um, Russia needs to be deterred. And deterrence is a psychological relationship. This sends a message where it induces a kind of cost-benefit. It tells the Russians that this kind of aggression will cost you far more than any benefit you gain. And that cost has to be clear, and that cost has to be actually extracted. Now, I, I want to get to some of the possible ramifications, if we could, in just a second. But it, it just I want to make uh, another point to our listeners here, though, uh, Professor, if you if you would. Uh, this was not done arbitrarily. I mean, this just wasn't, oh, that's, that's a Russian plane, let's grab that. As you mentioned, it's it's not owned by the Russian government. Uh, but uh, the the company that, that does own it, of course, uh, was one of the country sa- uh, companies rather sanctioned by Canada after the invasion. Uh, and there's some concern here, as as I've read a couple of articles anyway, Professor, uh, that, it, that it may not be a government airplane, quote unquote, but they probably have used it uh, because it is one of the larger aircraft in the world, possibly for troop supplies, military supplies. Uh, in other words, feeding the Russian uh, efforts uh, in Ukraine, the illegal efforts in Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, th- this uh, aircraft uh, was justifiably seized. Uh, uh, but it's something else to seize and then sell it and forfeit the profits. That's yeah. where you get into complications with uh, with international law, because a seizure can mean that at the end of the conflict, there can be some kind of arrangement. I mean, for one thing, um, the, the parking fees for this aircraft are absolutely astronomical. It's uh, sitting in a very expensive area of mm-hmm. uh, the Pearson Airport. Uh, and the history of this uh, airline is not exactly a clean one. In 2007, the United Nations stopped doing business with them because uh, the allegation was that they engaged in in bribery. But as is the case with uh, so many Russian companies, the ownership is very complicated. There's a kind of web that the Russians have built. So if you look at uh, Abramovich and some of the oligarchs, uh, they may own minority shares, but that may still be a controlling share in some cases. So it's very, very difficult to to do this. And this is not to say that we should not pursue it, but we have to be very realistic as to how successful we will be. And this is why we have to try different avenues. And we have to keep our eye on the strategy. And the strategy is to extract a really high price from Russia for its aggression and also to compensate in some way Ukraine and allow to rebuild because when this war is over and Ukraine hopefully is successful because that would be justified in international law, then the cost of rebuilding Ukraine is so vast 
as I noted, the estimates are that it will be at least $400 billion. And there are something like $300 billion of these funds sitting in various locations around the, the world. A good deal of it is uh, in euros in the Belgian euro clear house. But Canada can be one of the countries that moves on this and sets uh, this kind of important precedent and hopefully will be followed by the others. So that's why whenever we engage in this kind of action, we really have to think through the entire consequences and more than just headlines, because the headlines certainly were positive uh, and were encouraging that Canada is doing something, but then will we get the desired uh, effects in this? The Russians, of course, threaten retaliation, but it's not that much that they can do more in terms of retaliation because our trade with Russia is almost down to zero. Um, last year went down by over 80%, and by the end of last year, it was absolutely minimal. But with that in mind, uh, you know, when, when the Russians say, uh, you know, the relations are close to being severed, uh, if they go to that step, is that is that really a, just a symbolic move, or are, are there ramifications to severing relations with Canada? Even if they broke off diplomatic relations, we could have uh, communication through other countries, Switzerland, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not uh, something that uh, should tremendously worry Canada. Uh, we have to look at the big picture, and the big picture is how do we deal with this kind of aggression where Russia basically has been uh, getting away with using force uh, without paying a penalty. This is not the first time that Russia used force. As we know, uh, the invasion of Ukraine didn't just start last February. It began in 2014, and the sanctions were entirely ineffective. Some of us wrote long papers about why they needed to be sanctioned to deter a future invasion. It it wasn't done. Businesses just went and conducted uh, their operations as if nothing had happened. The head of the French uh, multinational huge oil company Total rushed to Moscow after 2014 to reassure Vladimir Putin that it was business as usual. Well, we have to basically make sure that it is not business as uh, as usual. You mentioned, but uh, this is obviously being sanctioned by the G7 because they're the ones that uh, that actually, I guess, passed this whole thing. Uh, does NATO have Canada's back here? Just in case, I don't think there's going to be any military repercussions. Uh, but uh, the concern here, I guess, uh, Professor, would be cyber attacks, things of that nature, which they're probably doing anyway. But maybe you know, ramping that that whole process up. I mean, the, the, it's not like the Russians not to be retaliatory in some way, shape, or form, isn't it? They they may try some kind of retaliation. They're using cyber warfare already. We know that uh, there've been cyber attacks in the United States. There've been many cyber attacks against other countries, and we better make sure that we get our cyber defenses in order, uh, and that we are ready for this kind of hybrid uh, warfare because Russia does indeed engage in this, and we have to right size Russia. Russia is not a superpower. Uh, Russia is a bully. Uh, Russia is a regional power. Uh, Russia has inflicted the horrific pain in Ukraine, but it is not the Soviet Union. And so the alliance is vastly uh, more powerful than Russia is, but it has not been willing to use its resources to mobilize its capabilities. So in Canada, we have to look at our defense policy. Uh, Are we doing what is necessary for our own protection? And sadly, that is not uh, not the case. Our armed forces have been run down uh, uh, very, very, very badly. Our capacity has been 
tremendously limited. And, you know, today, uh, the population of Canada reached 40 million. We are a major country. We have enormous potential. And yet, when we look at our our forces, they are absolutely minuscule uh, with very little capacity to do more than very limited operations. And that needs to be changed for the protection of sovereignty, uh, for being able to be a better ally within the alliance. We have to move along all those fronts. Well, especially, as you mentioned, because of the current situation. And I know that the, the prime ministers have been receiving an awful lot of heat now from, from NATO and from uh, J7 partners, as a matter of fact. I, uh, my understanding is there's actually a, a NATO exercise that's going on with NATO countries, including, of course, uh, air power. And Canada's not taking part in it uh, to the extent that they should because our, our planes are basically in the shop. They're, they're, they're not ready to be in service right now. And for a country that's involved in this and Canada making a bold step like that, you're absolutely right. They they have to back this up, and that, that means being militarily ready. It's very sad because uh, we have uh, very highly trained uh, personnel in the military. We have superb pilots, but they can't fly planes that are being uh, worked on, planes that are older in many cases than the pilots who fly them because we have stuck with uh, – the F-18 planes, and even though there was a decision made by a previous government some like 13 years ago to buy uh, the new stealth fighters, the F-35s, which now is being bought by most NATO members, uh, we delayed that decision. We're not going to get them for uh, at least a year and a half. Uh, and so in the meantime, we are faced with a terrible situation that we have to spend a lot of money just to keep our airplanes, the relatively small number of fighter planes we have, uh, just to keep them uh, keep them flying. And this major exercise, uh, the largest number of airplanes that NATO has involved in an exercise uh, uh, in decades over Germany, we cannot participate in that. And that kind of shows how badly we have allowed our armed force to run down, even though we are a country that in terms of nominal GDP, is roughly similar in size, uh, a tiny bit smaller than Italy, and roughly similar in size, actually, in nominal GDP to to Russia. Uh, More to come on this, certainly, uh, from NATO members as well, and see what the Russians do. Professor, always great to get your insights into this. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Professor Earl Brown from uh, University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.